Uh, to those of you just now joining us online, uh, welcome. It's good to have you be a part of worship with us today at Freedom as we uh, are going to dive into, you, you know today of all days where we're going, we're going to dive into the Christmas story. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn with me to uh, Mark chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2 as we're going to look at both of their accounts of the birth of Jesus. This season of the year, probably uh, other than the original Christmas story, the story that is probably told at least on screen and on stage more than any other is uh, the work by Dickens. Everybody knows that a Christmas carol, Scrooge, and uh, that cast of characters. It is, uh, in American culture, is probably Dickens' best-known work, but it's probably not his greatest work. Uh, his greatest work probably was A Tale of Two Cities. How many of you ha- had to read A Tale of Two Cities when you were in high school or in college? Bless your hearts, I did too. I, I don't know how you felt, but I, I think I was a high school junior when I had to read that, and being the... Uh, the one to tend to wait till the last minute on those long assignments. I remember the misery of being at the beach and it was the last minute and I had to read A Tale of Two Cities. I want to tell you that felt like torture to have to be at the beach reading Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. But it really is uh, a profound work uh, telling the story of what was unfolding in both Paris and London in the days leading up to the French Revolution and in the first few years of the revolution. And of course, the story begins with uh, those classic lines that are unforgettable. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. It was a great opening to help us begin to understand what life was like in those days when there was such a split in the culture. There was a small upper class and aristocracy that lived a life of such comfort and ease. And then there was the mass of the population that lived with such oppression, so much difficulty, so much poverty. And there essentially was no middle class. You were in one group or the other. Thus, it was the best of times. And it was the worst of times. For most, it was the worst of times. And that was what led up to the revolution. Well, those words certainly would fit. It actually would fit our day if you look at at the whole of the world. For us, you know, we represent the aristocracy. I realize that in American culture, we don't have a, a, you know, a class structure But in the world, there is a class structure, and we are the aristocracy. We are the privileged few. We are are the ones who are served and who live essentially lives of ease compared to most of the rest of the world for whom it seems like the worst of times. That hasn't changed with all of modernity and all of the the creature comforts that, that have been made for our lives it hasn't changed i mean you think about it 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 truly still is the best of times and the worst of times christianity has spread and like wildfire has just tackled every continent that's inhabited and yet you know in the 20th century there were more people martyred in that century because of their christian faith than in the previous 19 centuries combined it truly is the best of times and the worst of times well that opening line was a perfect description of the season in history into which Jesus came into the world, His first advent. It truly was the best of times and the worst of times. Jesus was born into a time and place where 
there was a, a ruling class. There was a ruling group. The, the Jewish people had been conquered by the Romans and the Romans were in authority. They were living as occupied people. And so there really were two groups of people. There were the Romans and those few Jews who had allied themselves with the Romans and they had the power and they had the money and then there were the bulk of the Jewish people who lived in poverty, who lived lives of oppression. For them, it was the worst of times. And it was at that point on the globe and in, at that point in history that God said, it's time for me to show up. He didn't wait until things were comfortable and nice. He stepped into the most difficult of times. And as we read about His coming, I want you to notice today how Matthew and Luke give us an account of His arrival really sort of the lens, through the lens of two different places. It is for us a tale of two cities in a way because as we read Matthew 2 and Luke 2, I want you to notice how the story unfolds through the perspective of those in Jerusalem and of those in Bethlehem. These are going to be two really significant cities, not just in the arrival of Jesus, but in the whole story of His life. Bethlehem will be the city of His birth. Jerusalem will be the city of His death. God will arrive on the scene in the humble little town of Bethlehem and God will be murdered on a hill just outside the city of Jerusalem, just a few miles away. Matthew tells us, picking up where we left off last week, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. We're familiar with this. I mean, it's hard to, to grow up in, in Western culture and not be familiar with these lines and the idea of these magi, these wise men, coming to worship Jesus. It's still really hard for us to frame who they are because there isn't anybody in, in our time, in our culture, that would be the equivalent of these men. They're, they're not just magicians. They're not just wise men. These are powerful men, but they are not political figures. But they are the ones who are so respected in the culture from which they have come, that they have the authority. They're able to read the times and the signs of the times to discern who should be in charge. And these are the ones who have the authority to say, this will be the next king. These are those who carried a, a mantle that's greater than that of being in control. They are the ones who would anoint those who would take control. And those are the guys who show up. You, you can just imagine this caravan of these guys who are coming in, they, they don't come in in poverty. These guys represent wealth and strength. And when their caravan comes into town, everybody notices. Everybody wants to know who is it that's just arrived and what is this all about. And when they show up, they're asking one key question. We're looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. Do you know where he is? Now, that's a really striking question because... They don't lack for a king. In fact, in Israel, they had more kings than they needed because they were answerable to Caesar. And beyond Caesar, they had a regional king. His name was Herod. We know him as Herod the Great. He was a psychopath. He was a tyrant. I mean, the, the closest thing that we can think of in the 21st century to him, the, the closest that I can imagine is, king, uh, is uh, Kim Jong-un, the, the successor of Kim Jong-il. And in case you have been asleep for the last decade. There is no place on earth where there is greater oppression taking place right now 
than in North Korea, where people are being starved, they're being tortured, they're being imprisoned without cause, and they're doing it in massive numbers. There hasn't been anything on a scale like this since Hitler ruled Nazi Germany. It's that bad. If, if you haven't read the reports that have come out this year, uh, the study that was commissioned to, to find out just how much bad stuff was happening in North Korea, it's breathtaking. And this, once again, modern-day psychopath is behind that. Yeah, this is the same guy who caused Sony Pictures this week to pull a movie before it could be released on Christmas Day. A comedy. It, he's, he's that much of a, of a nut job who's so paranoid, that's Herod's. 2,000 years ago. Anything that threatened him, he, he'd go crazy. You know, in, in our time, in the last year or two, Kim Jong-un, part of how his reputation has grown so rapidly is how vicious he is. If you didn't, you know, read about it a, a year or so ago, his uncle, he believed, might pose a threat to him. And so he had his uncle and all of those who supported him placed in a pit with dozens of starved dogs and over a span of an hour, he had his uncle and those associates around him killed by being eaten alive by these starved dogs. That's, that's the kind of nut job that Kim Jong-un is. Well, Herod was the same kind of guy. Every time anyone, whether it was somebody you know, out in the community or even from within his own family, if he just perceived there might be a hint of a threat, he would have them executed. Well, when somebody shows up, and, and the guy who has been king for decades and who's killed everyone that he perceives as a threat, and then these outsiders come in and say, hey, we're looking for the guy who was born king of the Jews. Well, Herod wasn't born a king. He didn't come from nobility or royal family. He, he got there through manipulation, and he knew one thing about himself. They were not looking for him because he was not born king of anyone. And suddenly, he and all of Jerusalem were very upset when... King Herod heard this. He was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Don't you know that's the case? Verse 4, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. So the Magi left. They went. They followed the star. And they found the, the baby and his parents now in a house. So they're beyond the, the point of, of the stable and the manger. They've made their way to probably renting a room and a house. And they go and they present the gifts that they brought of gold, uh, incense, and myrrh. And then they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, not to do what they had been asked to do, to report where the child was born, but instead to sneak back to their home country. So they leave to do this. And then an angel appears in a dream during the night to Joseph and says, you've got to leave tonight. You've got to get the baby and Mary, and you've got to get out, not just out of the city, you've got to get out of this country because Herod is coming. He's sending his soldiers. He's going to do everything he can to kill Jesus. And Matthew says, that very night, in the, I mean, can you just imagine how unsettling that is? He has to, to get up Mary and, and take the baby Jesus, and they flee to Egypt, where they have to remain until Herod dies. 
And, of course, what follows then is the, just the horror of verse 16 where it says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Can you just imagine what a horrific night and week that would have been? As soldiers come charging in, and not just in Bethlehem, but all the surrounding region, they murder every baby boy. Well, we flip now to Luke chapter 2. Dr. Luke gives us a bit of a different perspective on the birth of Jesus. Matthew has given us much more of a perspective through the lens of Jerusalem and the, and the you know, power brokers in Jerusalem. That, that's where they all were because Jerusalem was... Uh, the city of power. It was the holy city. The temple was there. It was the center of all religious activity. All of, all of the Jewish power brokers, they lived in Jerusalem, but also the political uh, power base was in Jerusalem. Now, Dr. Luke is going to give us the perspective from Bethlehem. Very different community. Much smaller. It's not far away at all. Just a few miles south of Jerusalem. But it's much more of a sleepy village. Even to this day, it's not a large city. Uh, this was not where powerful people lived. This is where the average poor people lived. And Dr. Luke, as we read last week, describes the birth of Jesus in a stable or a cave there in Bethlehem. And then we pick up the story in verse 8 where he says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified, but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all of the people. Boy, that was really significant because up till now, there's only been good news for a few people. Most of the people, it's been the worst of times. Good news for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and He is Christ the Lord. We're real familiar with that term, but I don't know that we catch the meaning of that. That word Christ, it is the, the New Testament word for an Old Testament promise. Messiah, anointed one, the promised one, the one that generations for centuries have been waiting for. He has come. And this will be a sign to you that you will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to men on whom His favor rests. I hope that when we get to heaven, that there's a video screen. A big one. And I hope we get to see replays of some of the greatest moments in human history. Because I want to see a replay of that night. Earth could not begin to appreciate that the defining moments in all of history are beginning to unfold. The arrival of God on earth as man. The arrival of Jesus and then the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. All of this in the span of 33 or 34 years. All of history will hinge and turn on these moments. And nobody on earth knows what's coming. Nobody can appreciate what's unfolding. But the host of heaven, no. Can you imagine from their perspective as they have been watching as evil rules on earth? that They took part in the actual conflict between the angels who had rebelled against the authority of God, who tried under the, the leadership of Lucifer to overthrow the very throne of God. They were cast out of heaven. And for thousands of years, they have essentially reigned on earth. There has been so much evil on the loose. I mean, what mankind has done to itself 
just unspeakable stuff and much of it at the at the prodding of an unseen enemy that has been kicked out of heaven. And can you imagine how those two-thirds of the, the angels of God who had been faithful to the Lord, who had taken part in that conflict, how they have been just chomping at the bits. These are powerful beings. I mean, these are not just humans with wings. I mean, forget those pictures. The little fat cherubs that you see painted on, on plates. and stuff, That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about the guys that every time they show up in Scripture, including in this picture, when they show up, people are terrified. They're going, oh no, we are in trouble. These are powerful beings and they have been watching and waiting. I mean, can you imagine how many times they have talked back and forth? Gabriel talking to Michael and saying, don't you just know the day is coming that the Father is not going to let this stand? Don't you just know a day is coming? He is going to crush Lucifer. He is going to step on these who have opposed Him, who have taken the greatest crowning work of God's creation and have so oppressed them. They have led in genocide. They have led in rape. They have led in the abuse of children. They have caused all of these things. It grieves the heart of our Father. Don't you just long for the day when He shows up on earth and He sets things right. And, and now they're watching. Now, this is the secret plan of God. Paul makes this clear. This is the great mystery of God, the coming of Christ. The angels haven't been told how this is going to unfold. God doesn't want Lucifer and his followers to know how this plan is going to unfold. Because, oh, it's the ultimate sneak attack. What he's going to do, they never could have dreamed how this is going to take place. But the angels are watching, they're wondering, and they are realizing that God the Son, Jesus, is leaving His throne in heaven. He is coming to earth. Oh, is He going to be leading an army? We stand at the ready, Father. You give the word. We are ready to kick some satanic booty. We are ready to come and do Your bidding. But He doesn't do it the way that they expected. When God the Son shows up, it's as an infant... They don't understand how all this is going to play out, but they know it's happening. They know it's taking place. Jesus has shown up and God says, you know what? I'm going to give you just one little chance that they are going to get to take part in what is yet to unfold in the final putting down of the rebellion against God. But he's like, I'm going to let you guys be seen on earth briefly on the night that Jesus shows up. I'm just going to let you show up and announce to those who can hear it the glory of what's taking place and the, the armies of heaven appear in the sky and they just begin to give praise, honor, and glory to the Lord Jesus. It's heaven breaking into earth. Just a little bitty taste of it. I want to see that. I, I want to see that video. I want to see the real thing. When the angels had left the shepherds and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Now, I'm not gonna, what I'm going to share with you this morning isn't complicated. I, I do just want us to step back and consider the story from a couple of different perspectives as we think of it in light of a tale of two cities. I want us to, to look together at this story and consider how Jesus coming into the world was seen and responded to by those in Jerusalem and by those in Bethlehem. Because those two places really do sort of symbolize two different responses to Jesus. And if, as you'll see... 
they really become for us a great picture of sort of the two different ways that we today can respond to Jesus. When Jesus shows up in our lives and when He makes Himself known and when He invites us into a real personal relationship, whether that be for the very first time or in the context of being a follower of Jesus, when He shows up again and He speaks and He invites us to be connected with Him in what He's about to do next. And we either respond like the people of Jerusalem or like the shepherds in Bethlehem. I want us to first consider the response in Jerusalem to the arrival of Jesus. Well, the first thing that stands out is that the news of Jesus' arrival, it was upsetting and disturbing. Verse 3 says, when King Herod heard about this, he was very upset. Other translations, he was very troubled. And so was everyone else in Jerusalem. You know, we understand why Herod would be upset. I mean, when you are the sitting king of swords, he's the regional king, and king makers show up and say, hey, we're looking for a different king. That's going to be a little upsetting, isn't it? Herod is disturbed by that, but all the people are as well. It's kind of, a, kind of an odd statement. I mean, it's easy enough to assume from that that it's sort of like in your house, when, you know how they say, when mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. Well, that's extended in a much bigger way. Hey, in Israel and in Jerusalem, when Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy because... Herod makes everybody miserable. It, it, it probably extends beyond that, though. Just the very thought, even though these people live under an oppressive ruler, they've become accustomed to that. And the thought of something coming in to change that, and you know when these men who look like royalty, when they come in in their caravan and they announce, we are looking for a king, and he's a different king from the one you now serve, that everybody's like, oh, no, no. This is going to be really bad. Now, they've known for years that they needed a change, that they needed something different, and now here's an opportunity to have the, at least the hope of a change, but they're freaked out about that. It sounds a lot like how we, we respond to the thought of change. I mean, have you ever noticed that? Like, you can be in a bad relationship, young people. You, you can have a boyfriend or a girlfriend who's just a dirty, rotten louse, you know? But if you've been with them long enough the thought of getting out of that relationship, even though that would be a really good thing, it's just really upsetting, isn't it? Y'all know what I'm talking about? The adults in the room know what I'm talking about because most of you have been there and done that. You get in something, and even though it's really bad, it's at least comfortable and familiar, and so you won't do anything to change it. It's upsetting to experience change. The people were troubled. They were upset because the arrival of Jesus was definitely going to bring about change. Jesus showing up in your life today is upsetting. It's troubling at best because it's going to bring about change. You can bet on this. When Jesus shows up and speaks up in your life, he doesn't ever leave things like they are, does he? <laughs> he meddles all the time. He is going to bring about some change, and it's troubling. The second thing we can say about how they responded was that Herod made a false promise to worship Jesus later in verse 8. You know, he says, Hey guys, y'all go to Bethlehem and you find this king. Come back and let me know because at a future time, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to worship him too. Now, he's lying about that because what he's planning to do is go kill him, but he's making this promise about how later on he's going to go and worship the king. And I just thought as I was reading that this week, that is such a a great example of how many of us respond to Jesus when He speaks in our lives. 
that Jesus, yep, I, I need to get to Him. You know, I, I know I need to, I need to get on with that, that Jesus stuff one day, just not today. I know I've got to do business with God. I know I need to. I need to, I need to get right with God or I need to get this area of my life right with God. But just not today. But I'll tell you what. One of these days, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. Or one of these days, even though I'm a follower of Jesus, I've got some stuff over here that I have never given to Him because I don't want Him messing with that stuff. I, I like some of this pet stuff that I've held on to here. But I know one of these days, I'm going to need to bring that to Jesus, just not today. Well, Herod's response sounds a lot like that. By the way, do you know how far it is from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? About as far as it is from Fairhope to, to uh, Robertsdale. That's a long journey, isn't it? I mean, to consider that the whole issue in question here is not just about a king who has shown up, they clearly are understanding that the, the conversation is about the long-awaited one. For centuries, generation after generation has been waiting for the arrival of this one. And now they're realizing he might be here. You don't think you'd travel eight or ten miles down the road to just go explore this, that the hope of mankind may have just arrived? Here it's saying, you know what, let me know later on. Later on, I'll get down to that. We'll come back to this thought. Third thing that you notice in the story is that Herod's rejection of Jesus, not just that day, but overall, led to a total loss of self-control. The last thing that we read in verse 16, Herod does unspeakable things. He's to the point in, in his thinking that he will do anything to protect himself and his position, even now going to the extent of murdering every baby every male baby in a region. It's hard to absorb that, isn't it? I, I, I struggle with that. I mean, it's like I read that and I think my brain sort of shorts out and goes to a default setting of like, oh, treat it like a, treat it like a story, as if it's not, not really true. I mean, I, like holding Reagan this morning and just, you know, she's five months old and to just when you're around a little one and, you know, just... Everything seems so sweet and innocent and perfect. You just you could not fathom how one human being could do harm to a little one like that. That is just it's not a threat that hasn't hurt anyone. And and to realize no, this really happened. Countless families saw their babies brutally murdered because of Herod. How do you get to that point? I'll tell you exactly how you get to that point. One step at a time, and the first step is you don't yield to Jesus. You don't allow Jesus to be the king in your life, and you begin to go down a road that always leads to a total loss of self-control. Now, whether you're a person who has yet to come to a place of faith in Christ or a Christian who just isn't living in an intimate relationship with Christ on a daily basis, the same reality is true for us in either place. In your life, if you realize that you know, either I, I have never invited the Spirit of Christ to come live inside me, to change me, I've never been saved, I have never become a follower of Christ, 
You know, it's interesting. If you live in the Bible Belt, people who are in that place who have not yet come to faith in Christ, and we all start out there. There's no, if that's where you are, there's no condemnation in, in anything that I'm saying. All of us were born apart from Christ, apart from God. But if you're at that place, you know, if you live in the South, chances are you've heard the story of Jesus, you've heard about the, His death and resurrection, you know all that. And for some reason, up to now, you've delayed responding to that. Maybe you've been a little bit like Herod or you know, countless other people through the ages who have just said, not yet, not yet, I'm not, you know, I know the God thing, and before I die, I want to make sure I'm right with God. But we, we push that thing back and we put it off. I'm, I'm not going to live a horrible life, but there are some things that I want to do. That's the big thing that drives it for us. You know, if, if I let God in my life, He's going to start messing with stuff. He might start really shaking my life up. So I'm going to wait because I've got some good things planned that I want to do. And here's the thing you better take into account. Your heart, just like my heart, is more wicked than you could ever imagine. And apart from the living God, His Spirit coming to reside in you and to begin to exert His grace and His power in you to redeem you, your heart is going to take you places that you never dreamed that you'd ever go. You see, when Herod started out, he wasn't a psychopath at the level that he would go murder babies on a massive scale. He had to grow into that. But year after year of being in control of his own life and his own kingdom and answering to no one led to being more and more and more out of control. And I will promise you this, whether you are a Christian or not, if there is a portion of your life that you don't yield to the Lordship of Jesus, you will, whether you realize it while it's happening, you will gradually lose more and more control over what you do. Paul describes this very well in Romans chapter 1 when he said this, Since they didn't think it was worthwhile to acknowledge God, God abandoned them to a defective mind. Other translations say to a depraved mind to do inappropriate things. Some translations will say unnatural things. What he's saying is by choosing not to submit to God... And it just seems like, hey, th this is okay because I'm not a bad person. I'm just not ready to deal with the God stuff yet. And so I'm just going to retain control because there are some things that I wanted to do. I wanted to try some things in relationships. Or I wanted, to, you know, I wanted to try some things in terms of what I take into my body or what I experience. Or, hey, I just want to have control of what I do with my finances or planning my life. I want some control in this. That doesn't sound evil, does it? It doesn't sound wicked. But what he's saying is when you don't deal with God, when you don't yield to God... There comes a point in time when God will say, you know what, if you're not going to yield to me, you're not going to have my power protecting you from yourself and from the evil around you. And so I will let you go. I'll let you go further down that road than you ever intended to go. And there is a progression that you can't imagine. And Paul begins to describe that. How our minds are defective and we'll begin to chase after things that are so destructive. He says the results are that they're filled with all injustice, wicked behavior, greed, and evil behavior. They're full of jealousy, murder, fighting, deception, and malice. They're gossips. They slander people. They hate God. They're rude and proud, and they brag. And they invent ways to be evil. They're without understanding, disloyal, without affection, and without mercy. The whole point is this. You can't have it both ways. 
You're going to run to one extreme or the other. Either a life surrendered to God or a life that you intend to keep control of. And the surprise in that is you don't get to keep control. You will lose self-control. You will go down a path where you'll begin to do more and more of things that you never dreamed that you would do. I could give you any number of examples. The easiest one that just is, is the, it's so clear that we can all appreciate it is, and I'll, I'll share this as just one example because it's become such a pervasive issue in our time today. But people who feel like, hey, I'm going to hold on, whether they're followers of Christ or not, I'm going to hold on to this little pet thing that I love to do on the Internet. It's called Internet porn. And it can start out as just, you know, little stuff that, that it's not that big a deal. And, hey, maybe, maybe it just starts out with just trying to give yourself some pleasure by, hey, let's, let's just let Sports Illustrated or Victoria's Secret or whatever, just some form of soft porn be the thing that, that scratches an itch, you know, in, in your soul, in your mind for some kind of gratification. And so you, you visit that and you play with that. I'll guarantee you absolutely guarantee you if you allow that, you won't stay there. There's not one chance in a thousand that you'll stay there because there's always a progression. You see, if you're going to hold on to the control of that, that's not surrendered to Christ. And when you're not surrendered to Christ, there's always a progression in the opposite direction. And so what always happens with porn is that you've got to have something more. Now it's got to be more explicit. Now it's got to be beyond just sort of a tease. Now it's, it's going to have to progress to a point that there's full exposure. And then beyond full exposure, it's going to have to become graphic acts. And the thing that consistently happens when you talk to people who have been caught up in this is that it goes way beyond the things that we would think of as normal. So that, I mean, one of the things that's commonly known is the most popular form of pornography that's out there is lesbian. It's straight people watching lesbian porn. It's men watching women together. Okay, we can sit here in church and all shake our heads and go, that's weird. Why would that be the most popular thing? Because there is a progression to evil. When we are not surrendered to Christ, we're just going to maintain control of this thing. No, you won't. The thing that you think you're going to control, it will control you. And you will move down a path where God just goes, hey, if you're not going to yield to me, guess what? I'll take my hand off. I'll let you see what always happens when you don't surrender to me. And so you're going to go beyond what you had control of, beyond what seemed natural, beyond what you ever thought was normal. And the crazy thing is it goes way beyond that. I mean, that's where you get into things that we all look at and go, how in the world do people get into, you know, kitty porn and violence that's sexual violence. And it's like, and people watch this for entertainment. That's gross. That's sick. Yeah, it certainly is. And there are people who are absolutely hooked on it. And you want to know where they started? They started by saying, I've got control of this. I just, I, I have control of this. I just kind of like to play around with this. And friends, the example that I gave is only one of many. For some, that particular area is not a struggle at all. But boy, relationships really are. And the one thing that we want to have control of is who we're going to be with. The ability to control that and not wanting to have to surrender that to Christ. But I'm going to, I'm going to be in control of that thing. No, you won't. The, the old line is true. That, you know, about what sin will do for you. 
Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go, keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. It will always do that if we don't bring it in, confess it, and surrender to Christ. Herod was a picture of that. He didn't, when Jesus showed up, he didn't yield to that. And the result over the course of a lifetime was he became a monster. Well, in different areas of our lives, whether it's what we take into our bodies or what we do with our bodies or what we expose ourselves to, or even, listen, it can be as simple as just greed. There are people who, people under the sound of my voice in this room or listening online, that your thing that has held you up from yielding control to Christ has been a fear of what He would do, what He would say to you about what you get to hold on to. Your money and your stuff. It's just like, oh, I've heard about that Jesus. He'll do really crazy stuff. I mean, he looks at some people and says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. I don't want to follow that guy. Or if I'm going to follow him, I want to wait till the end of my life when I've been able to, to buy everything I wanted to buy, drive what I wanted to drive, live in the houses I wanted to live in, and then at the end of my life, maybe in the last year when I'm already going to be in a rest home anyway and I'm going to have to give it all up anyway, then I'll follow Jesus. I'll be a faithful follower and woo, there'll be a, a you know, mansion waiting for me in heaven. No, there won't. That's not the way it works. Doesn't mean you don't get to heaven, but don't expect any great reward for living that kind of life. And all you wanted was just a little bit of control. And it starts out, you know, it's crazy. When you're, when you're hung up on not wanting to yield to Christ, it's crazy the thing that will hold you up. It's like, you know, I, look, I just want to control the kind of house that I live in. I'm afraid Jesus wouldn't let me live in this kind of house. I just want to control the kind of car that I drive because I don't know that Jesus would want me to drive a luxury car and I'm just so afraid that He would tell me that I couldn't and so I'm going to maintain control of this area of my life. Here's the problem with that. The problem isn't a house. The problem isn't a car. The problem is the thing that you think that you control that you won't yield to Jesus, it will control you. And you thought it was just about a house or about a car or about a boat or whatever. But that thing that you had to control, I promise you, you give it time and it will control you. And it won't just be about a car in five years. Check you in a decade and it won't just be about the house that you live in. The house that you had won't be nearly enough. It's going to take more and more stuff, just like pornography takes a progression. It takes more and more shock value to get the same effect. It's going to take more and more stuff. And that little thing that you had to control that you couldn't yield to Jesus over time, becomes a big monster that controls you. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You with me? Welcome to Jerusalem. But this story has a different perspective. There's a different take in Bethlehem. The response in Bethlehem to Jesus' birth in the beginning is a little bit similar to what we saw in Jerusalem. The shepherds initially were very frightened in verses 8 and 9. The shepherds living in the fields guarding their sheep at night and when the angels stood before them, the Lord's glory shone around them. Luke says they were terrified. Well, we have that in common kind of across the board. It is a startling and disturbing thing when Jesus shows up when God speaks into our lives. I can think of different instances in my life where he's done that. Now, we, we tend to spiritually romanticize that moment when we look back on it, when God really shows up in your life. But when we're real honest with ourselves, I think of some of the most significant moments where Jesus has shown up in my life there was a real scary factor in that. 
Do you all remember moments like that? I mean, like I remember as a 16-year-old, I was sitting in a worship service, and God spoke to my heart. The guy preaching, he wasn't preaching about going into the ministry or anything like that. I don't remember what he was preaching that night, but I know it. When God spoke to me, it was not through him. He just spoke to my heart, and he spoke to me in a, a very direct way about ministry. And at that point, I already had figured out a plan for my life. I was going to go into medicine because I was going to make a lot of money and I was going to own an airplane. And I, you know, I was figuring out my life already. And when Jesus spoke, my heart started beating out of my chest because it's, it's my flesh going, oh no, this is real trouble. This is scary. I don't want to be that guy up there on stage. I want to be the guy who goes in the operating room, does surgery, and you write me a big fat check. And then I drive home in my luxury car to my big fat house. That's the life that I want. Jesus Pick somebody else. It's a scary thing when Jesus shows up in your life. And when the angels showed up, when you begin to experience anything representing the divine, it can be unsettling. Well, we're not without cause and being alarmed when Jesus shows up and starts talking to us. Because the message of Jesus is an unsettling message. For starters, the good news ain't good news till you know the bad news. Isn't that the truth? I mean, who needs Jesus unless you're messed up? I mean, the Jesus who says in Luke 14, 33, simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. Does that sound easy? Does that sound inviting? That sounds scary to me. That's the Jesus we're talking about. Which, by the way, bears no resemblance to the Jesus who says, Hey, any old day that you're ready, you just pray a little prayer, and then you go back to living your life the way you've been living it. But you said that prayer, or you're going to have to get wet in a, in a pool or a baptistry. But as long as you pray that prayer and you get dunked, you're good, and you can go back to living your life. No resemblance between that guy and the Jesus of Scripture who says, Unless you're willing to take the things and the people that are dearest to you, and you're willing to kiss them goodbye, you can't be my disciple. You can't belong to me. That, that ought to be a little unsettling. That ought to be a bit troubling. And the shepherds, in their first encounter that's leading to them meeting Jesus, they're, they're upset. We can understand that. But the pivotal point is the second thing that we notice, and that is that the shepherds dropped what they were doing, and they urgently sought Jesus. Luke says, As the angel choir withdrew into heaven, the sheep herders talked it over. This is uh, Peterson's version in the message, the sheep herders talked it over and said, let's get over to Bethlehem as fast as we can and see for ourselves what God has revealed to us. So they left running and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Seeing was believing. To me, the, the two pivotal little phrases in that are as fast as we can and they left running. There is a huge lesson for us in this. I really believe that that there's a hole in our theology when we think about God and how we how we come to Him, how we interact with Him, that essentially looks like this. That God is good and He's just out there, just He's like a big cosmic fisherman, just hoping that if He throws out enough lines and enough churches, some sinners will bite. He'll bring us into his family, and just he's just waiting, just hoping one day, you know, he's he's fishing in this room today, and he's just hoping maybe one person 
will say yes to him, and then he'll be happy to have one more in his family, and that he's just going to keep fishing, he's going to keep throwing out that line, he's going to keep giving you that opportunity, and he's just hoping that in the span of 70 or 80 years, the day will come along where you're either feeling good enough or convicted enough about your sin or whatever, that at some point something will drive you to finally take the initiative and you'll say, okay, God, I'll give in. I'll let you have my heart. Come on and be my Savior. And then it's all good. That is not at all a biblical picture of how the sovereign God of all the universe interacts with us. Some of you are going to go home and you're going to wrestle with what I'm about to say. That's all right. Go home and wrestle. The God who made you, who orders and controls everything in the universe, is not sitting back waiting for the day when you take the initiative to decide, I think today's the day that I'll come to God. That's a major hole in our theology. God honors us in an incredible way when He looks at our sorry, sin-soaked, wretched souls and He says, I still choose to love you and I take the initiative to reach into your experience and in a moment of time, I make myself known to you and I show you your need and I show you my love and my provision and I invite you to this incredible offer of saying yes to allowing me to come in and transform your life. Don't you fall into the trap of thinking that because in a moment of time God speaks to your heart and convicts you and invites you that you can sit around and wait for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years and in your time, on your day, say, okay, God, I decided I'm ready today. Now let's do business. Don't you think it happens that way? God is the one who is sovereign. And the whole in that entire idea is you're giving way too much credit. We're giving way too much credit to our flesh. Do you think that your sinful flesh one day of its own choosing and initiative is going to decide sometime down the line, oh, I think I'll turn to God today. No, it won't. You remember what Jesus said? Nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him. I am reminded of one of my worst parenting moments ever. <laughs> when Whitney, my younger daughter Lindsay is here today. Whitney's actually about to land in Gulfport, headed home for Christmas. But uh, uh, when Whitney was young, I think, she was, I think she was seven years old at the time, she was always inquisitive. We'd always you know, say prayers and do Bible verses at night in bed. And she was always inquisitive. She would, man, at three years old, she would ask hard questions about the Trinity. She just always exploring and wanting to know more. And at age seven, she shocked me by saying, Daddy, I think Jesus is wanting to come into my life. I, I think it's time for me you know, to become a Christian. And I'm just confessing to you, I screwed up as badly as a parent can screw up in that moment. I mean, I'm, I'm a seminary-trained minister of the gospel. You would think I'd have some clue how to handle that moment. I screwed it up badly. I'm like, because in my mind, my, my thinking is, I don't want either of my kids 
to pray a prayer at such a young age because they're growing up in church and they're exposed to this all the time. And I don't want them at such an early age to, to do something that they've seen others do that they don't really understand and then kind of miss out on the real thing. That was the thing that was throwing me off. And so in that moment, I'm like, oh, 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 well, are you sure you're ready? I'm, I'm, you know, basically what I was saying was, I'm not sure you're ready. Let's give it a week. I don't know where that came from, but it wasn't from the Lord, let me just tell you. Let's take a week and you think about it. What a stupid answer. You think about it for a week and we'll talk about it. And you ask me any questions that you've got. And after we've had a week to think and talk about that, then if you're ready, we'll do the deal. That didn't, nobody ever taught me that. That was just dumb. And so she's like, okay, Dad, if that's what you think. So we go through that week, and I, you know, we talk at different times. And so we get to the end of a week, and I'm like, you know, nervous about the whole thing. Okay, now we've got to have the talk. I hope she's old enough. I hope she really understands. And a friend has actually come over to visit that day, a very good friend. And, and so she is, you know, there with uh, their mom and, and praying, and they're knowing I'm going in to have the talk. This is the talk where she's going to be saved. And I'm like, got to get this right, got to do this right. And I go in, I'm like, okay, sweetie, you know, we said in a week, it's been a week. So, you know, do you have any more questions? No, sir. All right. Then if you're ready, we're going to do the thing. Are you ready? No, sir. I felt like last week Jesus was knocking on my heart's door, but I don't feel that anymore. I'm dead serious. I felt like I should have been sent to hell right then and there. I mean, it's just... Jesus said, you know, if anybody is a stumbling block for a little child coming to him, a millstone should be tied around their neck and thrown into the depths. And I'm like, do it to me because I just kept my child from becoming a part of the family of God. Thankfully, it wasn't a great while later that we were in a worship service and during the invitation time, I still remember, we're, you know, in Baptist church singing from the hymnal. And, and we're, we're, you know, singing probably just as I am. I don't know. We're, we're singing the response song. And I remember her tugging on me and looking up and big tears were rolling down her cheeks. And she said, Daddy, Jesus is telling me it's time. He wants to come into my heart. And we went back to my office and we prayed together. And she accepted Christ. And her life has been transformed ever since that, that day. And about a thousand pounds came off that, my shoulders that night. But, but I share that story as a reminder we're not nearly as much in control of this exchange as we think we are. When God speaks in your life, when Jesus shows up, whether it's Him showing up to call you to salvation and faith in Him, or if He's showing up in your life as a, as a Christian, as a follower of His, and saying, all right, it's time for us to move in a fresh direction. It's time for us to take a fresh step. It's never okay to have Herod's response. Yeah, one day we'll get around to that. Check back with me later. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. When God speaks in your life, it's usually not to talk to you about something that's supposed to happen 10 years down the line. He talks to you today about what He is wanting to do today. And it is such a dangerous game to say, Well, you know, we'll get back to that. I, I, I've got good intentions, God. I'll get back with you. Today is the day. The final thing I'll say is this. Uh, the shepherds, the final part, and their, their portion of the story is the shepherds told everybody around them. 
about their encounter with Jesus. In verse 18, they told everyone they met what the angels had said about this child. And all who heard these sheep herders were impressed. It made an impression as they told the story that unfolded that night. I started by talking to you about a tale of two cities. I don't know if you remember how a tale of two cities concludes, but uh, just, just to sum up the end of the story, Darnay, who's been a central character in that whole story, the, the revolution is now taking place. The peasants have taken over, and they're killing the aristocrats right and left, the guillotine. They are lopping off heads right and left. Well, Darnay, who has been in London, has come with his family back to France and because some of his family were part of the aristocracy and some of his family have done some wicked things, he is accused of that. He's sort of, in some ways, unjustly accused. And he's imprisoned. And at first, he's let off. But then he's accused again. And the sentence is passed down that his head is to be taken off. And it's going to happen the next day, and there's no out. There is no appeal. There's no way of getting out of this. Darnay will die the following day. But he has a friend named Carton, who, uh, who bears a striking resemblance to Darnay. And he knows somebody in the prison that he has some junk over them, and so he's able to pull a little blackmail and enlist the help of some friends. And long story short, he goes in on the day before his friend is going to have his head lopped off. And he's, he, with some inside help, he's able to go in, and unbeknownst to Darnay, he drugs Darnay and renders him completely unconscious, and then he switches clothes with him. And then he places his papers on him and he has his inside help carry him away, get him into a carriage with his family. And while Darnay is still unconscious, he is whisked away to the coast to be carried safely out of the country. And the friend, Carton, who, who looks very much like Darnay, remains behind in the cell. And of course how the story concludes is that Carton actually gives his life for his friend. And the concluding thoughts in the story are... Of, of this friend who is laying down his life for, for his friend Darnay. He's thinking about how this is going to play out. And the great comfort that he has is the knowledge, and he's rehearsing this in his mind as he is awaiting his time to go to the guillotine. He is rehearsing in his mind the story that will be told. The story of a man who loved his friend so much that he was willing to lay down his life to save his friend. And he thinks through how even from generation to generation that story will be told because there is no greater love than, than that a man would lay down his life for his friend. And he, he winds, you know, concludes that with the thought of it is a far, far greater thing that I do than I have ever done. Well, friends, the reason that that story connects with the human heart in fact, this is true of virtually every great story and screenplay in all of human history. The, the reason that the greatest stories connect with our hearts is because they in some way connect with or they are a reflection of the great story that God is telling that is centered around Christ and what He has done. I mean, think about how the tale of two cities is a reflection of the Gospels. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was an age of, of abundance. It was an age of great suffering. We identify with that. And the story concludes with one who there is no way out. He is going to suffer the ultimate punishment. And at the last minute, when there was nothing that he could do to save himself, someone stepped in and gave his life so that he could live and be free. It's the gospel. 
It's the story of the Gospel simply brought to a more modern day. Our hearts connect with that because it is the story that our hearts were formed to hear and respond to. Every person listening to me, your heart was made in a certain way so that your heart and your mind, it's like it's encoded into your brain. Your heart knows that there is something special that is unlocked in this story that you were just like Darnay. You were doomed. I was doomed. It didn't matter how much you went to church. It didn't matter how much you tried to clean up your act. It didn't matter what you did. You and I were doomed. We were destined not only for a godless life here on earth, we were doomed for a godless eternity that would mean the worst suffering that we could imagine and there's nothing that we could do to save ourselves. And yet when it looked like all was lost, Jesus showed up. And He did the unthinkable. He took our place. Just like Carton did swapping clothes and handing off the papers and saying, you be me and I'll be you. It's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't just show up. We wouldn't celebrate Christmas if it weren't for the passion of Christ. Christmas would mean very little to us if it weren't for the reality that He came into our cell. He traded clothes with us. He gave us His papers. He said, you walk free as if you were born the sons and daughters of God. The shepherds, after they encountered Jesus, they couldn't help themselves. They had to tell everybody about it. And when you have experienced this great exchange, it is just the natural thing. You just can't help but tell people, you're never going to believe what God has done for me. I was such a wretched, miserable wreck of a person. My life was so off track. But Jesus came in. He took my place. He took the punishment that I deserved. He took on all of my junk. And in place of that, He gave me His righteousness. He's given me power to live a new life. He's made me right with God. I'm so different because of that. That's what John's talking about in 1 John chapter 1 when he says, we saw it, we heard it, and now we're telling you so that you can experience it along with us. This experience of communion with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. And your joy will double our joy. This coming week, we'll celebrate Christmas in lots of different places. Most of us will either have family in or friends in our homes or we'll be traveling to see family in the coming week or two. And and in lots of different ways, we'll celebrate Christmas. And I just want to close today with this simple challenge. That as we consider the Bethlehem version of this story, that it's not just about us choosing today to say yes to Jesus and every claim that He would make to our lives. But it's also about following the example of the shepherds that wherever you go, especially in the coming week or two, as you're going to be around family, don't shrink back from doing what the shepherds did. It's a scary thought, isn't it? It is such an unsettling thought that, oh no, with that family member, maybe with multiple family members who you know are not right with God, and who gets so weirded out anybody, anytime somebody wants to talk about religion, don't talk to them about religion. Talk to them about Jesus. Tell them about what Jesus did in your life and what a joy it is to know and follow Him. Don't let the holidays pass as you're coming up alongside loved ones, family and friends that you know need to hear the truth. Don't ram it down their throats. You don't have to be ugly or abrasive. 
but just do what John did. John, just you can just hear it in his words. We just want you to experience what we've experienced. We want to tell you about what we've known and what we've experienced. We're not going to tell you foreign stuff. We just want to tell you what a difference Jesus has made in my life. And I want you to know the same joy. Would you join me as we go to Him together in prayer? Father, we give You thanks for the gift of Your Son, our Lord Jesus, and for all the difference that He has made in our lives. But we also confess He scares us to death sometimes. His radical claim to every part of our lives, past, present, and future, it disturbs and frightens us. And we we pray, God, that You would birth in us a faith to believe You when we aren't sure how this is all going to play out. I want to ask you right now, heads bowed and eyes closed, not just those in the room, but those listening online right now. Have you come to the place that you know that you have trusted Christ, that you have received His forgiveness and received Him as the Lord of your life? If that hasn't happened... And if you sense something stirring in your heart that's telling you you need to make that right, that's not me and that's not you. That's the Spirit of God. That's the Spirit of God drawing you and reminding you today is the day of salvation. The right time is now. And I want to invite you just to say yes to Jesus. To say yes to His forgiveness, yes to His love, yes to His Lordship giving Him the reins of your life today and for the future. And if that's what you're ready to do, would you just simply pray in your heart a simple prayer with me that is opening the door to allowing Him to begin to control your life and to make all things new. Would you pray, Lord Jesus, I need You. I admit to You my failures, my sin, and I'm asking You today to forgive me. Thank You for dying in my place. Thank You for giving me new life. Would You help me starting today to live the rest of my life to serve You? Thank You for forgiving my sins. Lord, I thank You for hearing and answering these prayers. I thank You for the work of Your Spirit drawing us to You. And I pray that in this moment You would seal this in the hearts of many with the, the certainty that sin is forgiven and that you've come to live in their hearts. Others of us have already trusted Christ. You've already experienced salvation and forgiveness. But you experienced that thing of God speaking in your life today. Some of us today, boy, the Holy Spirit put His finger on something. It may not be a specific issue I touched on, but the Spirit of God spoke to you and said, oh, there's that thing that you've held on to. There's that thing that you wanted to keep control of, but it's controlling you. And today, I'm calling you to a fresh level of obedience and submission that's going to lead to greater communion and intimacy. I just want to invite you right now. Would you respond to God in that? Would you take a moment just to say, Jesus, I confess my sin here. Be specific. And I yield this area and all of my life to you. I want you to be Lord of all in my life.
And now I invite you, Holy Spirit, to come in and fill me, to lead me, to empower and control me. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Son. And we thank You that the blood of Jesus is enough, that it's enough to cover our sin, that it's enough to make us new. And we thank You for the gift of the Spirit of Jesus who comes to live in us, to give us hope and power for living. We welcome You, Holy Spirit, and we pray that as we leave this place, You'd help us to live worthy of the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in His name. Amen.